Hello, and welcome to part two of lecture number four in the Hobbit series, Rescued in the Wild, by the Wild. Today I'd like to step back a little bit from looking at Bilbo himself to looking more broadly at the world around him. From the beginning of the lecture series, we've been looking at Bilbo's progressive immersion into the adventurous world, as he left his own world of safe and comfortable things farther and farther behind. In lecture number three, we looked at the turning point in his career, when Bilbo is finally completely immersed in that world. Thus far, however, we've only been talking of that world as an abstract generality, a place of darkness and danger that is distantly removed, both literally and figuratively, from Bilbo's Bagginsish world at Bag End. In chapters 6 and 7, we start to learn more about that world itself, and I want to focus on that for most of the rest of this lecture. The label Tolkien gives to it is The Wild. The Wild is not just evil. When Bilbo enters the Wild, he's not just behind enemy lines. The Wild is morally complex. There are both wicked and good creatures there, but the lines between these are not neat and comfortable. In fact, there's very little that's comfortable in the Wild, even though there are things about it which are great, noble, and magnificent. I think that the best way to look at the character of the Wild is to study the creatures that live in it. Our first introduction to the Wild is in the Tunnel of the Goblins, and this, as we've seen, is rather a shocking introduction. I said that the Wild is not merely evil, but Tolkien impresses upon us the dangers of the Wild by introducing us first to its most evil denizens. The Goblins provide us with a kind of standard of wickedness. They are the moral baseline of the creatures of the Wild. I spoke in the previous lecture about the depravity of the goblins, which we can see so clearly illustrated in the cruel and harsh little song they sing after they capture Bilbo and the dwarves. In chapter 6, Tolkien again affirms their depravity, and he cements this by the same means, with the songs they sing about the trees that Bilbo and his friends are hiding in. You can find both of their songs on page 97. Tolkien calls their first song a horrible song. Fifteen birds in five fir trees, their feathers were fanned in a fiery breeze. But funny little birds, they had no wings. Oh, what shall we do with the funny little things? Roast them alive or stew them in a pot? Fry them, boil them, and eat them hot? What makes this song so horrible is the mockery and the frivolousness of it. We know that the goblins are furiously angry because the dwarves have killed their chieftain and they want revenge. The revenge of the goblins, though, is not taken with grim satisfaction or even with rage, but with sadistic amusement, even a kind of sickening delight. Their song invokes amusing, even peaceful imagery, funny little birds perched in the trees with the breeze fanning their feathers. The repetition of funny little establishes an almost childish tone to the first four lines, a tone which Gandalf plays on when he is trying to intimidate them with his authority by calling them naughty little boys. The answer to their rhetorical question, what shall we do with the funny little things, brings about a sudden shift in tone from light to grim. Roast em alive is rather an off-putting answer to that question. The list in the last two lines of the different culinary options for cooking dwarves may remind us of the similar and lengthy cookery discussions that the three trolls had in chapter 2. Nobody seems to be able to figure out how to cook dwarves. But in this context, the goblins' lyrics are even more wicked. Evil the trolls may have been, but their discussion was a purely practical one. To them, the dwarves were a food source, and they were having an honest disagreement about how they should best be prepared for eating. The list in the song, however, is not a debate among chefs. It is an extended fantasy of torture. The goblins aren't really planning to eat the dwarves. They're just amusing themselves by imagining all of these various painful ways for the dwarves to die. This amusement is clearly illustrated in their taunts to the dwarves after their first song. Maintaining the metaphor from their song, they urge the dwarves, Fly away, little birds, 
taking delight in their knowledge that the dwarves cannot, in fact, escape. Most horribly of all, they end by commanding the dwarves to sing. Undoubtedly, the goblins are anticipating the screams of agony that the dwarves will let loose as they are burned to death, and they are mockingly comparing it to birdsong. This is goblin humor at its terrible best. Their second song is a reprise of the original capture song back in chapter 4, and it has the same rhythm and a similarly rude and violent diction. Burn, burn, tree and fern, shrivel and scorch, a fizzling torch to light the night for our delight, yahay! Bake and toast em, fry and roast em till beards blaze and eyes glaze, till hair smells and skins crack, fat melts and bones black, in cinders lie beneath the sky, so dwarves shall die, and light the night for our delight, yahay! Yahari hey! Yahoy! The first stanza once again illustrates the depravity of goblin nature. They refer to the burning tree as a fizzling torch that will light the night for their delight. In this we can see why the goblins considered their plan to burn out the dwarves most amusing. The burning trees will serve not only as an inescapable means of death to their hated enemies, they will also provide convenient illumination so that the goblins can properly enjoy the spectacle. Killing their enemies would be okay, but for the goblins the true delight is being able to watch them suffer. In fact, this enjoyment of the dwarves' suffering is the entire subject of the second stanza of the song. Just as in the original song in chapter 4, this song dwells on immediate sense experience. In that song, they started by re-experiencing in the first verse the capture of the dwarves, and then anticipating, in the third verse, the imminent slavery, torture, and misery of their captives. In this song, the first stanza describes in simple, ugly language the fiery spectacle that they are watching at that moment, while the last stanza moves on to dwell on the horrible thing that is about to happen. Just as the goblins began cheerfully making the third verse of the capture song come true right away by coordinating the swish smack with the actual cracks of whips, leaving the dwarves to yammer and bleat in time with the music, so here the goblins timed the final yahoy that celebrates their joy in the fiery deaths of their enemies with the actual catching on fire of the first occupied tree. Notice also how keen is the goblins' pleasure in their anticipation of the dwarves' gruesome deaths. They are thinking not only about what they will see, beards blazing and eyes glazing, but what they will hear, skin cracking, and smell, hair smoldering, fat melting. All of their senses are engaged in their gleeful, morbid expectancy. In these songs, in fact, we can hear a horrible similarity to the elves' song in Rivendell. The elves sing a simple song full of laughter, and of the childlike delight in beauty and in living things, a sensual reveling in the flowing of the river and the baking of bread. The goblins sing songs that are also full of laughter, and of a simple delight, songs that revel in sensory experience. The elves are good people, their love and good nature are pure and overflowing. The goblins are very wicked people, their cruelty and malice are almost equally pure and overflowing. The elves celebrate life, and the goblins celebrate death, but the similarities between the two are striking. We can even see, perhaps through this comparison, how the goblins were originally elves warped and perverted, and indeed how evil itself is merely a hideous mockery of goodness. But I'm digressing a bit now. There are many strange and terrifying creatures that Bilbo and the dwarves will meet on their journey, but none can beat the goblins in moral depravity. There may be creatures more powerful and more deadly than the goblins, but the goblins simply take more pleasure in the pain and suffering of others than anybody else does, and that's why they are the standard of wickedness for all wicked creatures. 
Now, next up in our survey of the residents of the wild are the wargs. The wargs are the goblins' partners in evil. Tolkien says that the wargs and goblin often helped one another in wicked deeds. Like the goblins, the wargs are thoroughly morally corrupt. This can be most clearly seen in Tolkien's description of their language. Tolkien calls it a dreadful language, and to Bilbo it sounds terrible, as if all their talk was about cruel and wicked deeds. Which it was, Tolkien confirms. Ironically, their language is what separates them most clearly from normal beasts, and marks them out as, in a sense, higher creatures. But it is also their language that most betrays their wickedness. Although they are the goblins' allies, the wargs are in one sense more wild than the goblins. Morally corrupt though the wargs are, they also remain beasts. Even though they are larger and more intelligent than typical wolves, their fear of fire, for instance, connects them with normal animals. Notice, however, that this wildness makes the wargs less, not more, evil than the goblins. The wargs would have cheerfully ripped Bilbo and the dwarves to pieces if they could, but the wargs' animal nature limits the evil they're capable of performing. Where the wargs are running about in terror and confusion, while Gandalf is harrying them with wizard fire, the goblins find the whole situation supremely funny. The goblins, with their civilized tools and advanced, as it's called, as Tolkien would say, perspective, are capable of moving on to a deeper level of cruelty than the wargs alone can attain. Moreover, there is no sense that the wargs would have tortured the dwarves, nor that they're anticipating the suffering of the dwarves with any particular pleasure. They'd certainly have killed the dwarves, but the sadistic creativity of the goblins is beyond the wargs. They are simpler and wilder than the goblins, and thus less completely depraved. This is one of the things I was referring to earlier when I described Tolkien's representation of the wild as morally complex. While the wild is dangerous and savage, its savagery is not always itself evil. The wildness of the wargs is in one sense the least evil thing about them. This moral complexity, however, is most clearly visible in the good guys of the wild, the eagles and Bjorn. Now, the eagles are obviously on the right team. They rescue Gandalf and the dwarves, and they're clearly enemies of the goblins and wargs. Some eagles may be cowardly and cruel, we're told, but these eagles, the ancient race of the northern mountains, are the greatest of all birds. They were proud and strong and noble-hearted. They show themselves to be honorable in their gratitude to Gandalf for his service in healing the Lord of the Eagles in the past, and we are told that they will receive great honor from the dwarves in token of their gratitude. The image that Tolkien gives us of the Lord of the Eagles and his chieftains in the future, crowned and collared in gold, the king of all birds in his glory, is a very splendid one, and it makes the eagles seem all the more grand and heroic. And yet we mustn't get the wrong idea about the eagles. They are not champions of goodness. The eagles do rescue the dwarves, but they don't really care all that much about them. When the Lord of the Eagles explains the rescue, he doesn't say, We saw good people in distress and so naturally wanted to help them. Instead, he just says that, though they were glad that it turned out that they could do a favor for Gandalf, the reason they interfered was that they were glad to cheat the goblins of their sport. Saving the dwarves was the means, not the end. This is further emphasized by the limitations of the Eagles' assistance to the dwarves the next day. The Lord of the Eagles says flatly, We will not risk ourselves for dwarves in the southward plains. Now, the dwarves' quest is in a sense a rather private matter. It isn't really the eagles' business, and there's no obvious reason why they should feel compelled to go out of their way to help the dwarves. But it's also hard not to contrast the eagles with Gandalf. Gandalf, too, reminds the dwarves that this is not his adventure, and that he has to leave them to attend to other pressing business. But he has already risked his life for them many times, and he will again. 
The Eagles, however, are just not that generous and not that proactive. Even their opposition to the goblins is pretty casual. The Eagles are not the defenders of goodness from the mountaintops, you know, watching vigilantly and preparing to sweep down on the goblins should they ever so much as show their wicked noses above the ground. Tolkien just says that they neither love nor fear the goblins. They do at times swoop down on them and drive them shrieking back to their caves, we're told, but this doesn't happen either regularly or often. Tolkien says that they only do this when they took any notice of the goblins at all, which was seldom. Most of the time, the eagles just don't care all that much about it. Their relationship with the brave woodmen that Tolkien told us about earlier is even more revealing. The woodmen appear to be, generally speaking, good guys. Remember that they are the ones whom the goblins and wargs had planned to attack that night. Yet the eagles live in open and unashamed competition with them. The Lord of the Eagles notes that the men would shoot at them, assuming that they would be after their sheep, and he immediately confirms, and at other times, they would be right. The meat that they bring to the dwarves that very night, you'll notice, includes a small sheep among the rabbits and hares. The eagles are good guys, but they're not on the side of all good, devoting their efforts to opposing all evil. One detail in their description is, I think, very evocative. Describing their vision, Tolkien says that the Lord of the Eagles has eyes that could look at the sun unblinking and could see a rabbit moving on the ground a mile below, even in moonlight. They can and do lift their eyes to gaze at high things. Remember the sun in Bilbo's daisy riddle? But their eyes are more often used for scanning the ground for prey. They are great and noble creatures, but they are, at bottom, predatory beasts. They are in conflict with human farmers, as many predators naturally are. The main reason they don't pay much attention to goblins normally is that they don't eat goblins, we're told. They are good, but they are not entirely safe, as Bilbo is uncomfortably aware. When he overhears one eagle refer to him and Dory as prisoners, he wonders whether they have been truly saved at all. And although he turns out to be wrong, the mistake is perfectly plausible. And when the eagle he is riding the next morning admits that Bilbo looks rather like a rabbit, he can't feel very reassured. The eagles are good but they are thoroughly wild. Okay, that's all for part two. In part three, we'll take a close look at Bjorn, a striking and unusual character, and we'll step back and start putting together some of the larger themes that we can see among the description of the wild and its natives. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.